there's always a danger in giving uh, extended outlines. In the first service, or after the first service, I uh, found out that there were some who were wondering, you know, where are we in this, in this outline? And uh, this is really not intended as an outline of the sermon. It's just intended over the course of the weeks that we're going through these two chapters uh, to show you where in history each of the verses are. And uh, for today, for example, under Roman numeral 2, uh, we are just going to be dealing with number uh, uh, letter C and 1, 2, and 3 under that letter C. And uh, so uh, for your notes, you're just going to be taking down some of the applications that we're making from that and uh, perhaps some of the historical details that you may be uh, interested uh, in. Uh, I, what I pointed out is that uh, one commentator said he recommended the preachers just not preach on these two chapters, and I'm convinced we're supposed to preach the whole counsel of God, every, uh, every chapter, but because it's so unified... Uh, it, it's hard to break up, and so we're just not going to bother in these next weeks following a normal a homiletical fashion or anything like that. It's a whole loaf of bread, and we're just going to keep slicing off uh, pieces of bread until we're finished, uh, chapters 11 and 12. Now, if you look in your outlines there, you can see uh, under the uh, first main point, uh, uh, B, uh, the, three, uh, the four kings that were listed in um, uh, verses there. Verses 1 through 2 cover the Persian kingdom. We looked at Cambyses, Smyrtus, Darius, Astaspes, and Xerxes. Long before those kings came on the throne, God, by his inspiration, gave this prophecy to Daniel, and it was to encourage the hearts of his people. And then we saw in verse 3 that Alexander the Great arose with uh, his empire. In verse 4, we saw how it fell apart, was divided into four parts with the four generals, east, uh, west, south, and north. And... Um, we spent uh, most of the time, a great deal of time, looking at nine practical applications from those four verses. Uh, they're very rich in application. And uh, I want to begin now with verse 5, looking at uh, some further history of this divided up uh, Greek empire. And I should point out, verse 5 begins 212 years after uh, Daniel gave his prophecy. And if you go through the whole chapter, you'll see it covers over 500 years of, of history. And so it really is remarkable when you see the kinds of details that are given there in terms of telling people about the inspiration of Scripture, uh, how, how accurate and how this is divinely given. And you can see why this is such an embarrassment to liberals uh, who are always trying to put prophetic passages into the past. Well, they know you can't push Daniel too far forward because, uh, as we'll be seeing, the Septuagint was translated uh, about the time that verse 6 occurs. Anyway, verse 5 says, Then the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Now, in Scripture, Egypt consistently is the kingdom that's to the south, and so this king of the south would be some ruler over Egypt. And if you want to look at verse 8, you can see a confirmation of that, because this king of the south... Uh, he's gone to battle, and he carries those uh, gods captive back to Egypt. So that confirms the king of the south is Egypt. At the time that the Greek empire fell apart, uh, the king over the south was Ptolemy I Soter. As you can see in your outlines there, he ruled from 323 to 285 B.C. And this passage says not only was this king a great king, but it also says that the, uh, there was going to be a prince under him, who was, if you look through down through the passage, who was the king of the north. 
Now, this is a remarkable detail. How could that incredibly powerful king of the north become just a prince under Ptolemy I, Soter? Well, here's how it happened. Seleucus, uh, one of uh, Alexander's generals, he inherited the northern part of the kingdom, uh, including Babylon. And what happened is Antigonus, uh, who was a king up there, he seized Babylon, and Seleucus barely escaped with his life. He fled down to Egypt, and Ptolemy, for some strange reason, he welcomed him, uh, made him as a leader under his kingdom, and uh, gave him charge over the armies. So um, Seleucus stayed in Egypt for four years, and at the end of that time, there was a battle with Antigonus, uh, which was won uh, by Seleucus in 312 B.C. at Gaza. Now, at that point, Seleucus then returned to his own kingdom, to Babylon, and uh, grew in such power in Babylon that he became a threat to Ptolemy. Uh, verse 5 says there, He shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great uh, dominion. Seleucus ended up being far more powerful than Ptolemy. In fact, his dominion was far more extensive than Ptolemy. Uh, it included Babylon, Syria, Media, uh, Asia. It's said to be the greatest of all of the divisions of the Greek Empire. So despite Ptolemy's kindness to Seleucus, putting him in power and all of that, there became a rivalry and fighting between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids up in the north until the treaty of verse 6. It says at the end of some years, and that would be 250 uh, B.C., at the end of some years, they shall join forces. And so there would be a treaty, an alliance between the northern Seleucids and the, and the southern Ptolemies. And the next phrase indicates how that was to come to pass. It says, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south, that would be Berenice, a daughter to Ptolemy II, the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. And so the idea was that Berenice would marry Antiochus II to seal the alliance between those nations and that her offspring then, her son, would be the ruler of the Seleucid uh, throne. But things get a little bit dicey and the verse goes on to say, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. Uh, and uh, we'll be mentioning a little bit more details later, but basically what happens there is that Antiochus divorces uh, Berenice. She's no longer king, so very literally she loses the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. Antiochus um, uh, loses both his kingdom and his life, but she shall be given up. Subsequent to the divorce, Berenice would uh, die, She'd be murdered. With those who brought her, her entourage would be killed, and with him who begot her. Uh, her father unexpectedly would die, and with him who strengthened her in those times, her husband would be murdered. And uh, so there's really remarkable details that are given here long before the events take place, uh, to be exact, 285 years before they occur. Now, here's how it all happened to fill in the details thinking that he would consolidate his empire after years of bitter fighting against Antiochus, but Ptolemy II gained the upper hand and he was able to force some kind of a treaty. He wasn't able to overrun the country, but he said, let's have an alliance. Antiochus, you marry my daughter Berenice. When she has a son, he will rule the kingdom. And so they agreed on that. The only a fly in the ointment was that Antiochus was already married to a very powerful and a very influential woman by the name of Laodice. 
And uh, so Ptolemy said, you have to divorce Laodice uh, before you marry Baroness. Well, he agreed to that, divorced her, married Baroness. And um, uh, you can imagine how unhappy Laodice was about that situation. She wasn't able to do a whole lot about it until two years later when Berenice's father, Ptolemy, dies unexpectedly. Well, now there's no longer any need to have this alliance, and Laodice talks Antiochus into divorcing Berenice and remarrying her. Now, her only purpose was to get revenge because as soon as she became queen, as soon as she married Antiochus, she murdered uh, her husband Antiochus, she murdered uh, Berenice, all of Berenice's entourage who had brought her up there murdered her son. And so again, you can see the incredible details that are outlined here. Laodice became queen regent along with her uh, son. Her son was king. And uh, the, the intention was that when he came of age, that he would be uh, the sole ruler at that point. Now, uh, there are uh, some applications that I would like to draw from this. I think just in terms of our encouragement concerning the inspiration of the Scripture, that's a marvelous enough uh, uh, application. But there's three other further applications I would like to make. And the first one is that kings must learn to put principle ahead of pragmatism. And you and I must learn to put principle ahead of pragmatism. Um, Antiochus' divorce of Laodice and his marriage to Berenice may have seemed like uh, the most natural thing to do uh, given the difficulties that they had had. That would solve all of their problems. They knew it was wrong, even in terms of their own morality, and yet they did it because doing the right thing seems so hard. Doing this thing pragmatically seems so easy to do. And yet the scriptural admonition, be sure your sins will find you out, works all the time, whether you're talking about the public realm or whether you're talking about your own private, uh, private um, um, uh, living. Uh, you may not relate to what they did there. You, you might think, oh, that's so far out. I'd never be tempted in that direction. But the point is, if you deliberately take the easy way out rather than doing the principled thing, you know what those issues are in your, your own life. The scripture says the same thing. It will let you down. We must live by principle, even if it's the harder thing to do, because pragmatism eventually does not work. It may work on the short run, but pragmatism is not the thing that should, should lead us. And it would have been a whole lot better for these kingdoms, for both kingdoms, if they had re resisted and um, uh, uh, dealt with things principally. A second application, and this is, to me, very, very encouraging. God knows how to frustrate the plans of the wicked and cause humanism to fight against humanism like at the Tower of Babel. And every time I run across this in Scripture, it's just so encouraging to me. Each point in the development of this drama here, uh, this, uh, 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 this sad soap opera, as it were, was absolutely essential for the furthering of God's purposes in history. And I won't take time to outline all of the different ways in which this was so important, but let me just give you a couple of examples. Now, we all know how critically important the Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt, was, uh, not only to Israel's history, but to the development of the church later on. And they would never have been forced to move to Alexandria if there had not been the kind of conflict that had happened here. Another thing that came out of there, if, Alex, if the Jews had not moved to Alexandria, there probably would not have developed the translation of the Septuagint. 
Now, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And if those things did not happen at the precise time that they happened, the development of God's kingdom uh, would not have gone along. And so you can see uh, how God's hand was in there. There are many other examples that could be given. If it was not for these intrigues and these fights that these two kingdoms were having with each other, they would have been freed up in terms of their time and their energy to unfold all of their wrath against Israel and to try to stamp out biblical religion. When you study the, the intent, the Hellenizing intent of those two kingdoms, both kingdoms hated what was going on in true biblical religion. And like at the Tower of Babel, uh, God very effectively puts off their plans, frustrates their ambitions, weakens their positions by having one humanistic uh, kingdom fighting against another one. Now, believers suffered in the process, but just think how much worse it would have been if it had not been for God's working in, the, in these ways until it was God's purpose when his people became evil uh, to bring about his judgments in their lives. Think about how much worse things would be in the Sudan if God did not bring about attempted coups and sickness and famine up in the north. Their hand would be even stronger. Now you think of the Gulf War, you know, there was a lot of evils that happened in that. You wonder, why did God allow something like that to occur? And yet, as a result of the Gulf War, there were so many Christians from Iraq who were held prisoner of war and according to the Geneva Conventions, here's humanism fighting against humanism, Saudi Arabia was forced to allow them to bring their Bibles in there. And they were allowed to testify to their guards. And there were so many Saudi Arabians who came to Christ. And there are so many Bibles presently in Saudi Arabia as a result of humanism, fighting against humanism. It is just remarkable how God brings his, his kingdom, uh, 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 advances his kingdom in this way. So the second encouragement and application is that anytime there is a Babel-type conspiracy against God's people... He knows how to blow it apart. He's done so so many times in the past. Babel was not invincible. Greece was not invincible. Even if the United Nations becomes a one-world government, as it seems like it's heading in that direction, it too will not be invincible. God knows how to blow them apart. A third application I've already hinted at here is that if our interpretation of verses 5 through 6 is correct, and if verses 7 through 35 is subsequent linear history, then liberals do not have a leg to stand on. And you've got all kinds of ammunition in this chapter uh, to, to uh, be able to uh, disagree with the liberals. Many times people have their faith uh, a question. They have doubts in their mind because of what many liberals have said about the passage. But as we go through some of the historical details, you're going to have the ammunition to say, it is so plain in the text that all subsequent history was predicted here. And why do we know that? Well, we know historically that the Septuagint was translated during the historical period of verse 6. What does that mean? Well, it means the Hebrew Scriptures were written prior to that. And, of course, Daniel says exactly that, that he wrote it during the reigns of Belshazzar, Cyrus, and um, Darius, and earlier under Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, well, let's go on with some of the other history. Verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. And I want you to notice there, it does not say, as liberal scholars try to say, they're always trying to discredit these passages, it does not say that it would be a, um, uh, a child of Berenice. Okay? It says that it, it is uh, from a branch of her roots. What is Berenice's roots? Her roots would be her parents, Right? Okay, if her parents are the roots, what would be a branch of those roots? 
It would be a child of her parents. It would be one of her brothers. And of course, in history, we find exactly that. Bernice's brother, Ptolemy II, Euergetes, uh, arose in place of his father, and he took vengeance uh, for the murder of his sister. And that's explaining the subsequent history. Verse 7. It says, but from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them, and prevail. Uh, the war described lasted from 246 to uh, 241 BC. It was a period of five years. And the Ptolemaic king not only conquered Syria and Cilicia and all of Asia, but he conquered the capital of the northern kingdom, Antioch, and uh, he uh, took um, a whole bunch of plunder with him. Uh, he killed uh, Laodice, who was the uh, queen regent, but, as this text indicates, he leaves the king in place. And so uh, the, uh, the king there, Seleucus II, uh, continued to be on the throne. Now, verse 8 describes the results of this conquest. It says, "...and he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt." with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king uh, <clears throat> of the north. Uh, it's a matter of history that Ptolemy did plunder the northern kingdom, and just to give you an idea of how much wealth he took from there, of the silver that he took, uh, they, uh, the ancient historians say that he took 40,000 talents of silver. Now, converted into modern currency, that's 36 million uh, ounces of silver that he took. And he had a, a bunch of other wealth, uh, it also tells us, the, the ancient historians, that he took 2,500 um, uh, idols, uh, 2,500 molded idols from the north, and he took them uh, down to the south. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Egyptians added that title to him, Euergetes, which means benefactor. Great, this guy's brought all of this wealth into Egypt. Not only that, but he's brought all of these gods. They're all going to be able to help us, you know, in our battles against other nations. Now, the last... A clause there can be taken or translated two different ways. I don't know which translations that you have, um, but the New American Standard, NIV, RSV, uh, they take it, uh, he shall refrain some years from the king of the north with the idea he'll refrain from attacking the north. And that's possible. That happened in history. I take it, uh, the, the more literal way, the New King James Version, both are possible translations, but the literal way is just that he's going to live longer or reign longer. And if you look in your outlines, you'll see, indeed, he did live longer. Now, what's remarkable about that is that he, uh, the king of the north was a young fry. I mean, he was such a young person, and yet this older person outlived him and outreigned him. So either way you translate it, you find it, again, fulfilled in history. Verse 9 speaks briefly uh, of uh, Seleucus II's attack against Ptolemy III. Then the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Uh, a very brief attack with a swift retreat right back up into the north again. Now, God wants us to understand that prophecy intellectually. And I think just understanding that can be an encouragement to our hearts. But again, I want to draw out some other applications from this because I believe God always wants us to live differently as a result of what we see. And uh, I want to give two more applications here. The fourth application uh, of this passage that can be made is that the kingdoms of this world are inherently unstable because their gods are unstable. Verse 8. Not exactly what verse 8 says. And we saw from verse 3 last week, that last phrase of verse 3, that the kingdoms of this world are inherently unstable because 
they live according to man's will, humanistic laws, rather than according to God's will. Only God's will is stable. But this is really getting to the, more, the deeper root of the problem of why they have ungodly laws. It's because they have, uh, don't have the God of Israel, you know, the, the God of the Scriptures. Uh, they have a faulty religious view. In this case, it's a pluralistic one. And I think a basic principle uh, in terms of culture is that you can tell the God or the gods of a culture by the laws that that culture promulgates. You can tell the God or the gods of a culture by their laws. Verse 8 says, He shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes, or as the margin indicates, most commentators take it that way, as their molded images. And so this is speaking about not only taking all of these molded images down to Egypt, but taking the gods that were behind those images, taking the philosophies that were behind those images. And I think that, in a nutshell, is the problem with all of those Hellenistic countries. They idealized pluralism. And it was this pluralism that set those nations against Israel, and I think you can figure out why. Uh, because um, pluralists tolerate any religion except for the true religion. Why? <clears throat> because the true religion is intolerant. They have tolerance for everyone except for the intolerant. And, of course, the Bible is intolerant of any other competitors with God. There is only one true God. There is only one set of laws for a given nation. And I believe that America has fallen victim to pluralism. And it seems that any laws are tolerated except for the laws of the Bible because any gods are tolerated except for the God of the Bible. Isn't that true? I think that is a key to understanding the culture wars in our nation. You know, if we just think it's a philosophical difference on which laws are best, we've missed it. We've missed it. It is pluralism that is at the heart of this problem. It is because they have re they've rejected the laws of the Bible because they've rejected the God of the Bible. <coughs> Through the first couple hundred years of America, America accepted Jesus Christ, accepted the God of the Bible. Many times people misinterpret uh, the Constitution when it talks about, um, uh, you know, no establishment of religion. Uh, there have been several court cases that have indicated they're not talking about Islam or Judaism or other things, but there's no, not to be establishment of any one denomination within Christianity. Uh, many court cases in Congress itself, which has declared our nation to be a Christian nation, it is no longer. But the Scriptures say... Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And as Christians, I think we have been too fearful, too timid in promoting that idea. We are not going to have godly laws in our nation unless our nation self-consciously and forthrightly accepts the God of the Bible. The two go hand in hand. Christianity is incompatible with the pluralism of America. And yet there is a whole movement uh, it's called principled pluralism, a whole movement which idealizes pluralism. Any religion tolerated in America. Uh, I don't think we can go there. There is an all-out war, and the Scripture says there's only one that can win, and it's going to be Christianity. One day, all nations will bow their knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. The fifth and the final application today is that we must not imitate the Greek culture of this chapter. Now, the culture of Greece... Uh, was um, a demonic culture. It was humanistic to the core. And I think one of the problems, just to illustrate this, with the, the Hellenistic um, uh, Jews of the time of Christ was that they so um, uh, um, 
emulated, is that the right word? They, they so idealized the Greek culture that unwittingly, I don't think they deliberately did that, but unwittingly they were violating biblical principles because they loved the wisdom and the literature and the art of Greece. And it sucked them into beginning thinking man's thoughts, thinking the humanistic thoughts of Greece, rather than thinking God's thoughts after him. And I think we ought not to honor Greek art and literature the way many Christians do today because that art and that literature reflects the gods of that culture. Rushduni, for example, has pointed out how the Greek uh, tragedy, you know, which I studied in English, uh, was, is such a part of our uh, upbringing and training that the Greek tragedy uh, is really an anti-Christian form of literature. It assumes a universe that is hostile to man, where fate and chance rules, not God. And you could trace through the literature, you could trace through the art forms of Greece, and you will see that it is demonic. It does not reflect the God of this world. Now, here's the problem. There are so many Christians. In fact, there's almost a Renaissance movement amongst Christians to go back to Greece, to go back to Rome, even amongst Reformed scholars. The classical uh, education movement, I think, many times falls into that. Now, there's a lot of good things about um, uh, the, the trivium, for example, I think is a great way of approaching education. But I think some of the Reformed scholars, I love uh, Doug Wilson, I love Doug Jones, but I think they are mistaken in idealizing Greece and Roman culture and spending so much time in that. We need to be developing a distinctively Christian culture rather than always going back to, 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 to the Greeks. And uh, you, you find it everywhere. William Bennett's uh, book on virtue, we have that. And a lot of people say, this is a book dealing with Christian virtue. It is not. What it's doing is it's amalgamating Greek virtue with Christian virtue. And the one is a counterfeit, but it looks similar to Christianity. And what it does when people take on the kind of virtues that the Greeks talk about, they're inoculated against the strong, vibrant, biblical virtues because they already think they have it. And so I think we need to be on guard and aware of the counterfeits that come across into Christianity today. I've got a, a systematic theology on my shelf, and it's embarrassing to admit this, is by a Reformed writer, and he starts his theology, this is W.G.T. Shedd, he starts his theology with Aristotle and Plato. And he thinks those people will probably be in heaven because, uh, you know, with the natural wisdom that they have, uh, they had it so close. That is nonsense. That is terrible. Greek theology, so many times by Christian, is put it on a par with Christian culture. It is diametrically opposite to Christian culture. It is a counterfeit to Christian culture. And so what I want you to do is to think Christianly, to think biblically in every area of life, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about the raising of your children, we need to think Christianly in all that we do. And if you do that, God will bless your efforts. Amen.